Hey, welcome to another episode of More Than Bread. We are nearing the end of this series on Paul's letters from prison. Not more than another two or three episodes, maybe at the most, including this one, and and we're done. So what's next? Not entirely sure. I I said I was going to hit 250 episodes and then take a break, which I will still likely do. But the break might be a little less than what I was originally thinking, because at the moment, I'm pondering a More Than Bread series for Lent. Never done a Lent series, did the Advent series. You guys kind of like that. So I have to ponder it a bit more and the work that it would take, but that's where I'm leaning. So if I do that, I'll finish Paul's letters from prison, uh, another episode or two, and then take a break till the start of Lent, which this year is Wednesday, February 14th. So some of you will just get caught up to where you're at in time to do the Lent series, and some of you will skip the Lent series, and anyway, we'll see how that goes. So welcome to A Whole New Letter, or sometimes we call them books. Usually we call them books. Philemon is a book of the New Testament, but it was also a not-too-long letter, a personal letter written from Paul to Philemon. Now, most of, of people's most of uh, Paul's letters are written to communities that the church gathered in a particular geographic region, like the church in Ephesus and the church in Colossae and the church in Philippi. But a handful of his letters went to individual people, and a handful of those individual letters made it into Scripture as a spirit-breathed, authoritative, valuable part of the Bible. In other words, the church over time has come to regard these personal letters as words from the mouth of God for us, for all of us. Not just for Philemon or Titus or Timothy, but, but for all of us. So in this episode, number 247, we are listening to the book, which is a letter written by Paul while he was in prison to a man named Philemon, who lived in Coloss, Colossians, Coloss. And and so he was also a listener to the corporate letter to the church at Coloss, the book of Colossians that we just got through. So so there's more than just a little bit of carryover from one to the other. We we should read Philemon in light of the context of Colossians. They're they're good ones to to bring together. Philemon is this often overlooked but impactful letter with a, a treasure of insights on forgiveness and reconciliation and and the transforming power of love. And and it's difficult to dive into Philemon Let me say it again, but it is difficult to dive into Philemon without addressing the delicate or the better word is probably controversial topic of what does God think about slavery? Because that's the underlying interwoven context of Philemon. Onesimus, who was mentioned in Colossians 4 as a faithful and dear brother who is one of you. A faithful and dear brother who is one of you. It's important that you hear that. Onesimus was mentioned in Colossians 4 to the people of Colossus, including Philemon, as a faithful and dear brother who is one of you. He was a slave. He was a slave who became a follower of Christ under Paul's influence. And Paul is sending this letter on Onesimus' behalf to Philemon who was Onesimus' owner and master. So with that said, I'm going to read the one-chapter book of Philemon from the New Living Translation. This letter is from Paul, a prisoner for preaching the good news about Christ Jesus, and from our brother Timothy. I'm writing, Paul says, to Philemon, our beloved co-worker, and to our sister Aphia, and to our fellow soldier Archippus, and to the church that meets in your house. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, 
because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. And I'm, I'm praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. And that's why I am boldly asking a favor of you. I I could demand it in the name of Christ because it's the right thing for you to do, but because of our love, I prefer simply to ask you. Consider this a request from me, Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you to show kindness to my child, Onesimus. I became his father in the faith while here in prison. Onesimus hasn't been of much use to you in the past, but now he is very useful to both of us. I'm sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. I wanted to keep him here with me while I'm in these chains for preaching the good news, and and he would have helped me on your behalf, but I, I didn't want to do anything without your consent. I wanted you to help because you were willing, not because you were forced. It seems you lost Onesimus for a little while so that you could have him back forever. He is no longer like a slave to you. He is much more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now, he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, would you welcome him as you would welcome me? If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, and I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. (laughs) My words here, Paul, come on, that's a little bit much. Verse 20, yes, my brother, please do this favor for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ. I'm confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask and even more. One more thing, please prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that God will answer your prayers and let me return to you soon. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. My words, if you listen to the one last episode, remember Epaphras is the one who wrestles in prayer. And so do, verse 24, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, don't forget, Paul's writing this from prison. In prison, he knows what it is to be submissive, to surrender his rights to, in a very real sense, be owned. And from prison, he writes this powerful message of radical grace, forgiveness, and the transforming power of Christ's love. The Philemon, a wealthy Christian in Colossus, finds himself at a crossroads when his runaway slave, Onesimus, encounters Paul and becomes a follower of Christ, which, which leads to this call for forgiveness and reconciliation through a display of radical grace on Philemon's part, a grace that goes beyond the expected to, to bust the societal barriers in a reflection of Jesus' love. But before we can dive into any of that, I want to take this episode and simply talk a little bit. I, I can't be you know, pervasive, but a little bit about the Bible and the issue of slavery. In the book of Ephesians and Colossians, Paul challenges slaves to obey their masters in the Lord. And and when you Google, does the Bible condone slavery, you discover articles that start with, of course it does, and other articles that start with, of course it does not. So let me just say, first of all, we we have to recognize that what the Bible says about slavery has been used to both justify and condemn slavery. That's part of the Civil War. There were Christians seeking the Bible on both sides of that conflict. 
I mean, let's be honest about that and start by pointing out that this isn't a problem we should just brush aside. It's a good thing for us to be offended at depictions of slavery, even in the Bible. Remember, slavery in the U.S. was legal until 1863. Segregation was legal till 1964, two years after I was born. It's not a bad question for a white guy like me to ponder the question, if I had lived in times of slavery like my great-great-grandparents, would I have worked against slavery? Or would I, like many Christians, have supported slavery because of the economic system? Christians were raised in an environment that taught them that slavery was legal and right, so they read the scriptures through those cultural colored glasses. And through the centuries, while many Christians emphasized saving slaves spiritually, they were always a little bit less focused on freeing slaves, literally. And and I, I think we ought to be troubled by things like that and not explain them away. So for an instance, when we hear the, the first story, the basic story of the first slave described in the Old Testament, Hagar, we should be troubled. When, when Abraham sleeps with his wife's slave girl, that's not just slavery, that's sex slavery. We, we ought to be troubled by stuff like that and be slow to just explain it away. Don't lose the reality that people like Philemon were not quick to recognize the injustice of the practice of, of owning someone. On the other hand, when we read the Bible, we need to realize that it's not always the case that what the Bible describes, God prescribes. In fact, the Bible is full of the failure of people that is not acceptable to God. Just because the Bible talks about it doesn't mean that God approves it. In fact, I would argue that oftentimes in the Old Testament, even sometimes in the New Testament, the words of God were planting seeds that would eventually bring a harvest of righteousness, a harvest of good change, but they were just seeds. It wasn't this wholesale change all at once, but But the words of God were planting seeds that would bring a harvest of good change. For example, in Exodus 21, 16, God's law says, whoever steals a person and sells them and anyone found in possession of them shall be put to death. That's a seed. That's a big seed. There's not a lot of wiggle room there to understanding God's heart on the matter. Don't steal people, don't sell people, and don't possess people. I think an example of a New Testament seed in this direction is Paul's words in Galatians as he talks about identity when he says there's no longer free nor slave, male nor female, Jew or Gentile. He's saying these are not our primary identity definitions. And in addition, just a word or two of context is helpful. For example, in the New Testament, the bond service practice, servant practice of the first century was really no different from being an indentured slave. It was so different from what we think of when we talk about slavery today, the stealing, owning, possessing kind of slavery. I mean, what was what was much more frequent in Paul's day was more what we think of as indentured servanthood. In fact, it was a it was a significant part of the Roman economy. All sorts of people were slaves in that way. There were teachers and lawyers and even political officials. This is, in fact, it's what Jesus was referring to as an example of forgiveness in Matthew 18 when he, when he said, if you can't pay the debt, so you get sold into slavery. If someone was extremely poor, consumed with debt, they could sell themselves to pay the debt. This kind of slavery was not a stealing, owning, racial prejudice kind of slavery. 
J.D. Greer writes, rather than issuing a political manifesto, God planted seeds, which ended up undoing the current order. Had God said, this system is wrong, get rid of it now, Jesus' followers may have focused exclusively on political action. And there is a time to work politically. But God had a different way of going about his agenda on the earth. He, He was transforming the world from within, and the place he started was in the church he started with his people. And, and over and over again, we've seen that strategy work. A Christian writer named Clement in about AD 95 wrote, we know of many among ourselves who have delivered themselves into slavery in order to ransom others. So, so think about this. You're a slave. You have no dreams of ever being free. You have no money to buy your freedom. And one day your master comes and takes off your chains and says, you're free. You can go. You have no idea how this is, how this has happened. And, And then you see somebody else from this group of Jesus followers, and and they didn't have any money either, but they loved you so much. They loved Jesus so much that they went to your master and said, take my life for his. We know of many who have done this, Clement wrote. (laughs) And as the Christian faith spread after the fall of Rome, the practice of slavery actually dwindled. Centuries later, when slavery reemerged, Christian advocates like the Mennonites and the Quakers and individuals like William Wilberforce strongly opposed it. Most of you have heard the name Harriet Tubman. She was born into slavery on a Maryland plantation in 1822, and as she grew up, she was made to work driving oxen. Her her owners would frequently whip her as much as they whipped the oxen, and, and she endured the pain of seeing three of her sisters sold, never to be seen again. But when her owner tried to sell one of her brothers, Harriet's mother openly rebelled. The would-be buyer gave up after Harriet's mother told him, the first man that comes into my house, I'll split his head open. Her mother's actions likely implanted in Harriet the idea that resistance to evil was right and could sometimes be successful. As a child, Harriet herself would run away for days at a time, but But there were rays of joy in her life as well. Harriet's mother told her stories from the Bible which developed in her this deep and abiding faith in God. And when Harriet was about 26 years old, she learned that she might be sold away from her family, and the time had come for her to try to escape. She made her way some 90 miles along the Underground Railroad. She traveled at night to avoid slave catchers following the North Star until she reached Pennsylvania and freedom. And once there, she dared to make a dangerous decision. She risked her own freedom in order to give others theirs. For eight years, she led scores of slaves north to freedom. During those trips, she relied upon God to guide and protect her. She never once lost a runaway slave. Harriet herself later put it this way. She said, I never ran my train off the track and I never lost a prisoner. But she gave all the credit to God explaining, taunt me, t'was the Lord. I always told him, I trust you. I don't know where to go or what to do, but I expect you to lead me. And he always did. Her faith deeply impressed others. Abolitionist Thomas Garrett put it this way, said, I never met with any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God as spoken direct to her soul. And throughout the history of the church, it's often been the most passionate lovers of Jesus, those who were the most heavenly-minded, who did the most earthly good. Count Zinzendorf was a, a passionate lover of Jesus. Throughout his life, Christ's blessed presence was his all-consuming quest. 
So you can imagine that prayer was an important part of his life. In fact, starting soon after a season of revival in the late 1720s, Zinzendorf started a prayer meeting that lasted for a hundred years, continuous prayer round the clock for a hundred years. This hundred year prayer meeting fired up a passion, not just for Jesus, but for people, for all people to experience freedom of Christ. So the prayer meeting led to a missionary movement. They they followed the call of Jesus to go everywhere to all people. And on October 8, 1732, a Dutch ship left the Copenhagen Harbor bound for the Danish West Indies. On board were the first two Moravian missionaries coming out of that 100-year prayer meeting. John Leonard Dober, a potter, and David Nitschman, a carpenter, both of them were skilled speakers and ready to sell themselves into slavery in order to reach the slaves of the West Indies to to reach those who were slaves. As the ship sailed away, they lifted up a cry that would one day become the rallying cry for all Moravian missionaries. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. You understand that there's a basic idea that underlines the entire Old Testament. And the, the idea is that God can be known by his actions in the world. This view arises primarily, at least first and foremost, from the Exodus experience. During the Exodus, the Hebrews came into relationship with God. They knew God for the first time. They knew God because he had acted in history to deliver them from slavery in Egypt. His actions, his first actions revealed who he was. He was the one who delivered us from slavery. The Israelites understood that God's actions in the arena of human history were not just, you know, God's got amazing mortals with his power. Neither were they solely aimed at easing the plight of people, although he did that. But God always acted in history to reveal himself to the world. And the Israelites express this in terms of making for himself a name. God was making for himself a name. In the culture of the ancient world, names carried more significance than today. A person's name represented an essential part of that person's character. It is not coincidental that Yahweh, God's first act for his people, would define his name as the one who delivers. The one who delivers from bondage. And that name held true when Jesus came, the one who delivers. Are there times when it seems like Paul is less concerned about staying in a state of slavery than we would like him to be? Perhaps yes. But that's not because he didn't value people. He valued all people. He he lived a life of suffering and was more than willing to suffer for the good of all others. But it is more than clear that in the light of eternity, even the suffering of slavery could bring good, could be a suffering that would identify with us with Christ, could be a suffering that would lead others to know Jesus, and would be a suffering that, as he would later say in the book of Romans, even the suffering of slavery is nothing worth comparing to the glory that shall be revealed in and through the children of God. So later today, read Philemon again. With all of that in mind, God is a deliverer. God does not condone. The Bible does not condone slavery. But there is a glory to come. There is a glory to come that will put all suffering to shame. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your love for people. Thank you that you are a deliverer. Thank you, God, that that these issues of slavery and injustice, they are on your heart as much today as they were millennia ago. 
that from the very beginning, you created a people who would be your people. All would be your people. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue will gather at your throne. God, I'm grateful that you love us, each of us, that you have adopted us into your family. And God, I pray for the people of the world who are experiencing elements, or deep elements of slavery and injustice. And God, I pray that you would show yourself again and again and again to be the God who delivers. And I pray that you would lead us to not only wrestle in prayer for those who, who are in bondage, but but to give and to do whatever it is that you call us to give and to do. That, that people in our world, in our lives, in our circle, in our country, in our world would experience the freedom of Christ. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.